it's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly nonfiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is, or at least try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a Book Riot podcast and is hosted by me, Kim Ukra, and fellow rioter Alice Burton. We're recording on Thursday, June 16th. Hello, Alice. How are you today? Um, I am, as always, trucking along. How are you? <laughs> also trucking along. It's been... Uh, we had like an epic heat wave, uh, but only like one day this week, and it was very weird. And then it's supposed to be very hot next week, uh, which is, I don't know, it just like hasn't been super hot much this year. So that'll be, it's just different. Oh, yeah. I think we had humidity temperatures in Illinois of like 103 or something for like two days. Yeah. But I was, <laughs> I told you uh, at the, before we started recording, I had like the flu last week and it oh. lasted for about a week and I just did not go outside that whole time. So people were like, <laughs> people were telling me how hot it was and I was like, yeah, sounds bad. Oh, uh, yeah. But yes, I did not experience it. That is good. Yeah. It was like sort of a like 24 hours here and then it, I think it's supposed to get really hot again next week for a little bit. And yeah, it's just been a, a weird weather time. Everything's... Everything's everything. <laughs> I don't even know. Do you have any follow-up? I do. So last week, or last episode in our uh, reading now, I said that I was going to be starting uh, The Puzzler, One Man's Quest to Solve the Most Baffling Puzzles Ever, From Crosswords to Jigsaws to the Meaning of Life by A.J. Jacobs, who is an author I really like. He does um, like stunt memoirs. He's done a bunch where he like spends a year doing something and then he writes about it. And so in this one, he's looking, he's exploring puzzles. And so it's not one of the ones where he like does puzzles for a year. He just um, kind of finds different types of puzzles and then explores like the history of that kind and then tries to do the hardest version of that puzzle he can find. Um, so he like tries to do the world's biggest corn maze. He enters a jigsaw puzzle contest, an international puzzle contest. He uh, tries to do like this enormous Rubik's cube, that kind of stuff. And so I, I, it's really fun and I like him and he's very funny, but I had to stop reading it because I was not loving it as much as I wanted to, which is, I think, like, a symptom of my, like, reading brain right now more than it is the book. But it just felt, like, disjointed to me. So I might come back to it later. But for now, I had to put aside the puzzler. Um, tell the people the New York Times Sunday crossword puzzle trivia that you informed me of a couple weeks ago. Did we talk about this on the last episode? I can't remember. <laughs> I don't think we did. I think I thought about it. If we did, then people can hear it twice. But yeah. I don't think we did. Okay, so uh, a few weeks ago, the Sunday crossword puzzle theme was Abraham Lincoln. So obviously, I uh, took a screenshot of the puzzle and I sent it to Alice to be like, hey, Abraham Lincoln, you love Lincoln. I love crossword puzzles. Synergy. And um, it was a Sunday crossword puzzle. So you said that, um, wow, you solved a Sunday crossword. And actually, no, a Sunday crossword puzzle is not the hardest crossword puzzle of the week. It is about as hard as like a Wednesday or a Thursday puzzle. 
the hardest puzzle of the week is Saturday. And so Friday and Saturday are puzzles that are themeless, which means they don't have any like connecting clues that help you like figure out some of the entries. And so they're historically harder. So it is exciting to solve the Sunday crossword because it is the biggest crossword puzzle of the week in the New York Times, but it is not the most difficult. This is this is just fascinating. <laughs> I know we talked about the Lincoln crossword last time, but we I don't think we specifically touched ah. on how I was like, oh, Sunday's really hard. And you were like, aha, no. Well, actually, then I like pushed my glasses up like a nerd and I uh, got to tell you that piece of trivia. Yeah, I've become extremely pedantic about that. Well, not pedantic because I don't think I like tell it in a mean way, but like a lot of people when I tell them like I'm into crossword puzzles and then I will like mention like I finally solved the Sunday crossword puzzle without any hints. They're like, oh, wow, the hardest puzzle of the week. And then I'm like, well, no, friends, no. And then I get to drop some knowledge on them, which I find uh, delightful, but also so nerdy. Oh, let's talk real quick about how Book Riot has an open position, which is very exciting. Yes, very cool. Uh, It is Digital Marketing Manager. So this is, uh, you can find out more uh, if you're interested. It's a remote position, but it is in, um, it's restricted to certain states slash areas. So if you want to see if yours is one of them, go to bookriot.com slash join hyphen us. And all of the info is there. But again, digital marketing manager, if that's in your skill set slash wheelhouse, check it out. Bookriot.com slash join dash us. Excellent. All right. And now we will hear from our first sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95 And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated. So Negative Space by Jillian Linden follows a week in the life of an English teacher at a New York private school. At home, her children ask constant questions about mortality and her husband offers occasional counsel between Zoom calls. At school, something happens. She accidentally witnesses an ambiguous, possibly inappropriate interaction between a teacher and a student. But how can she be sure of what she saw? Negative Space is a portrait of a woman caught between the pressures of what's normal and what isn't, and examines what we owe the people who depend on us in a fractured and indifferent world. It's a debut novel and a short novel. It's perfect if you want something quick and easy to carry around, but it's also thought-provoking. It takes place during the pandemic, but it's not pandemic-focused, and it really just looks at everyday anxieties and low-threat situations that have high consequences. 
So make sure to check out Negative Space by Jillian Linden. And thanks again to WW Norton and Company Incorporated for sponsoring this episode. All right. Uh, so now we will move on to nonfiction in the news, which is uh, where we'll talk about some nonfiction stories that are in the world uh, right now that we think are fun and interesting. So um, I brought two to share this week that I am excited about. Uh, The first one is from Collider. Uh, It's an article by Lacey Long titled Tiny Beautiful Things Series Adaptation Casts Catherine Hahn. The story is that Hulu is making a half-hour comedy series out of the book Tiny Beautiful Things, which is a collection of essays by Cheryl Strayed. Um, it is a collection that brings together the columns that she wrote uh, when she was uh, Sugar, the columnist or Sugar, so people would write in. Tiny Beautiful Things is a stellar collection. It is so good. And so they're going to make it into a half-hour comedy series, which I, I, like, I, I don't know how they're going to do it. <laughs> I don't know. And the article doesn't really have a lot of details. It talks about how um, Reese Witherspoon and Laura Dern were originally tied to the project through HBO back in 2015, but that deal never came together. And so this is a second attempt, I guess, at turning it into a series. I'm excited, but I'm curious, I guess, is my takeaway from that story. I have not read that book, but just like adapting a book of essays that might ne- not necessarily have like a through line. I yeah. can see that being challenging, but I mean, Catherine Hahn. Yeah, right. She's amazing. Well, and yeah. the essays, the way that Cheryl Strayed wrote them, like people write into Sugar and then she uses a lot of her own personal experiences to kind of help answer those questions. So like that she is answering and giving them advice, but it's very autobiographical the way she does it. And so like... Maybe there's a way in which, like, there's a frame of, like, the letter, and then she, like, acts out the experience of, like, answering. I don't I don't know. Oh, that – yeah, I could see that. So that I think that could be kind of a cool way to get at it. I'm sure there are many other cool ways to get at it. But, yeah, it, it's a beautiful collection. It's just – it's one of those where I feel like it's, it's best read in, like, small doses. So, like, a couple le- letters at a time just to, like, kind of spread it out and take in the wisdom over time. So I, I didn't see a date in the article, but that will be coming uh, eventually. And Catherine Hahn <laughs> is amazing. So cool. Do eventually. Eventually. All right. And then the second one uh, is an article from Kirkus by Michael Schaub called Olympian Nathan Chen to publish memoir in the fall. And I feel like that headline sort of sums up everything. Uh, Nathan Chen, who won a gold medal at the most recent Olympics, uh, he had a really... He had one of those stories where it was like Nathan Chen's redemption story because he had been to the previous Winter Olympics and had not performed well, even though he was expected to. And so now it was like he's coming in the most dominant male figure skater in the world. And is he going to like get his redemption and get his gold medal? And then he did. And it was great. And so uh, this memoir is going to be called One Jump at a Time, My Story. It's coming out this fall. It is co-written with Alice Park, and uh, it has a foreword from Vera Wang, the fashion designer who uh, designed the costumes that he wore during the 2022 Olympics. So, yeah, it's just, it sounds like it's going to be about his life in figure skating. And then he's also writing a children's book for Harper, a picture book that will come out in 2023. I like the title. I do, too. That's a good, that's a good title. It also reminds me of that um, song from Aladdin. So it's <laughs> it always a plus. It does. That's funny. I did not even think of that. Um, now I can't stop thinking about that song. It's so good. It is so good. So anyway, Nathan Chun's going to have a book. I'm I'm jazzed about that. He seemed like a seemed like a nice fellow uh, during the Olympics. So I, I'm happy for him. 
All right. Uh, with that, we will jump away from the news and into new nonfiction, which is books that are out now or coming out soon and that we are uh, excited to talk about. So I feel like I've been talking for a while, so I'm going to we're gonna change the order and you can go first. I knew this was going to happen. <laughs> we're like, we're so in sync. I was like, Kim has both of the news articles, so I bet this is going to be a re-pivot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can do that. We have so many new releases in June that I feel almost bad that we're yes only talking about like a few mm-hmm. but uh, subscribe to wait which newsletter is it that talks about new releases now true story <laughs> just true story till you'll do like more than yeah more than a couple yeah Kendra and I switch we each do new releases so yeah oh yeah for those unaware so I <laughs> <laughs> I, st- I stopped doing the Wednesday send of True Story, and now Kendra Winchester is doing it, which I read her first or second one yesterday, and it was really good. Mm-hmm. So that was exciting. I messaged her on Instagram and was like, thank you for taking it over. So if you have not subscribed to True Story, you should do that. Uh, so yeah, my first pick of new releases this week is Everything I Need I Get From You, How Fangirls Created the Internet As We Know It by Caitlin Tiffany. This, I was really excited about it because I just, I come from the world of fandom and Mm -hmm. that has been like my entire internet journey starting in 1996. And I just get it. I like it when people are excited about things. So I'm just automatically going to be jazzed about a book about fandom. The marketing around this book is interesting because if you just read kind of like the stuff from the publisher, it makes it less apparent that this book is about One Direction. <laughs> like, <laughs> like they do talk about it a little bit, but very it's it's more like it's about fandom in general. And it kind of is, but within the framework of like, I am a huge One Direction fan, which I oh. love. Another friend of mine who read it, she was like, I just... She's like, I was like, it's one of my favorite reads from recently. And just like, it just made me feel so happy because this person was so excited. Like, it's just, yeah. She talks about Tumblr and Twitter and how the like the differences between like standing and shipping and all things that uh, if you are very online, then you might be like, oh, of course, everyone knows those differences. But if you ever casually refer to shipping a couple and then have seen the blank look on someone's face, which has happened to me so many times in my life. Uh, shipping them where, they say. <laughs> then uh, this it'll, it'll be helpful for you if you are not familiar with these things. And if you are, then you can be like, ah, yes, knowingly. Um, she also talks about things like the a large, speaking of shipping, shipping community for the members of One Direction, like Harry Styles and uh, I don't know if it's Louis or Louis Tomlinson. <laughs> I don't know. Because because I uh, I enjoy some One Direction songs, but I have never gotten into the, the band. I'm in my late 30s, I feel like. <laughs> that would be maybe inappropriate, <laughs> even though the band is dissolved. Uh, but anyway, so it's just like a very, like a very like joyous and again, like happy look at the world of fandom, but specifically again from this like kind of like boy band that's like the wedge that mm-hmm. she uses to look at, at this um, online world and how fangirls interact with the internet and what they have contributed to it, which is just mm, so good. So again, that is Everything I Need I Get From You, How Fangirls Created the Internet As We Know It by Caitlin Tiffany. I'm super glad you talked about that one because I saw this one and I was excited about it also 
at least some, like, I like your description of a wedge. Like that, that makes sense to me that you would use kind of one fandom to kind of sneak in and then talk about lots of different types of fandoms and parts of fandom. And I also appreciate a book that takes things that women and girls care about seriously and it gives them like a look that says like this is important and this matters, you know? It is. I mean, if you just look at how much like BTS fandom has impacted mm-hmm. the world. Yeah. It's huge. These things are real and they have real impact. Yeah. Yeah. Great pick. I'm really glad you talked about that one. Uh, My first pick is called uh, The Divorce Colony, How Women Revolutionized Marriage and Found Freedom on the American Frontier by April White, uh, which came out June 14th from Hachette. Uh, And so April White, the author, is an editor at Alice Obscura, which I didn't know until I was like doing some research of the book, but it seems like... That seems accurate to me based on what this book is about, which is the story of how during the 19th century, women moved from primarily like the East Coast and other parts of the United States to South Dakota, specifically so that they could divorce their husbands. And there was a hotel in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, where all of these women, many of these women moved to so that they could live there and then get a divorce at the end of their uh, waiting period, which this whole thing is just so interesting. The book starts out talking about how in the 19th century, divorce laws around the United States and around the world, or United States, were very uh, inconsistent. So for a long time, like women could not get divorced unless there was, some women could not get divorced. And then some laws came into place where they could if there was like very clear evidence that their husband had done something terrible. But if you just like decided you didn't want to be married anymore, like that was not really a thing. Uh, and so as laws changed, it came to be that Sioux Falls or South Dakota um, had the easiest divorce laws in the United States. All you had to do was live there for 90 days and then you could file for divorce. So what happened is that women who, one other place that women often moved to so that they could then get divorced was uh, Newport. Apparently Newport, the the divorce rule was like a year you had to live there and then you could do it. But Sioux Falls was even easier. So women would get on railroads and they would travel across the United States and they would move into this very fancy hotel in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And then they would uh, just wait it out <laughs> until they could get divorced. But it was, a, it was a big deal, right? Like as soon as newspapers or gossip columns or anything like that saw a woman was leaving in New York or a big city and that they discovered that they were in Sioux Falls, they were like, oh my, like what is happening here? Like what's going on? <laughs> and uh, you know, there was lots of like gossip and stuff about it. And there was just a lot of um, people who were upset about women using Sioux Falls as a place to just go to get divorced. And so the book is a kind of about that whole history of why this happened and all of the people kind of connected to it and who um, were involved in making Sioux Falls basically like the divorce capital of the United States for many years in the 19th century. So there are a lot of like famous Gilded Age people uh, who come up. Uh, Carolyn Astor is in early in the book. I think the Astor family had relatives that came here. Um, just tons of connections to like famous people of the United States during this time um, were connected to this like story that I knew absolutely nothing about. So uh, if you are interested in kind of that social history and kind of a the drama and the gossip and the like high profile rich people having rich people problems but in South Dakota uh, this one I think is worth picking up so it's the divorce colony how women revolutionized marriage and found freedom on the American frontier by April White that is so fascinating that that was specifically like the 19th century yeah 
for a divorce because the way that like the thing that I knew about like div- like the location I guess that I associated with divorce was like Reno, Nevada mm. because in the 1930s <laughs> That was where, like, like I watch a lot of old movies, and it would be like, oh, that's where you go to, like, get a quick divorce, mm. is you go to Nevada, and, like, a lot of people, there was, like, a train that they would call the Divorcee Special. <laughs> that's basically what this was, except earlier in South Dakota. Right? That's, oh my gosh. Yeah. Weird. And they're both, like, kind of, like, uh, like, horse riding, like, they're evocative of, like, yeah. this kind of rugged aesthetic or whatever. Yeah, something about it being South Dakota is so amusing to me, and I'm not really sure what. I don't know anyone who goes to South Dakota. <laughs> I mean, South Dakota is close to Minnesota, so, like, I've been to South Dakota, and I don't know, just something <laughs> about that is very amusing to me, too. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure why. <laughs> I mean, I'm interested in going because of scenery. Yes. Although, I forget if it's that or North Dakota. Now, One of them. now I can't remember either. <laughs> Doing really great. Okay. Uh, let's talk about a really different story, which is Cabin Fever, The Harrowing Journey of a Cruise Ship at the Dawn of a Pandemic by Michael Smith and Jonathan Franklin. Sue, so, <laughs> do you remember March? This is a turn. This is a turn. <laughs> March 2020. <laughs> remember that time? Do we ever? Oh, gosh. Okay. So there was a cruise ship, and I do not know if it's pronounced Zandam or Zandam, because it's Dutch, and I do not speak any kind of Dutch. But they're basically, okay, so this cruise ship left from Buenos Aires in early March, like March 7th in 2020. And people had kind of been like, oh, there's like a there's like a virus going around. And the cruise ship people were just like, it's fine. We're going to go to Chile. And people got sick in the first week. They had 13 passengers and over 100 100 crew members. And this is over 1,200 passengers and almost 600 crew members on the board, right? So 1,800 people. And then a bunch of people got sick. And so Chile was like, no, you cannot dock here. So this cruise ship just kind of kept going from place to place. They tried to go through the Panama Canal, and the people said no. They at first tried to dock at Florida, and Florida said no. Eventually, there was, like, a kind of a compromise situation where, like, the, like, most ill people could be taken off, but then a lot of people had to stay on the boat, and they were just stuck on this cruise ship in this, like, nightmare situation. And it was just such a weird... Mm-hmm. Thing at the time, and I don't think I really paid attention to it at the time because so much was going on in those first few weeks. Mm-hmm. So it was like, oh, of course, there's a cruise ship that can't dock anywhere. But now that I feel like there's a little bit of distance, I was like, oh, that's really interesting because I love a like a like a closed environment mm-hmm. for a story, especially now that again there's a little bit of time, not a lot of time, but like a little bit of time. So uh, again. This is, and I mean, in case you're, you people, some people did die on the boat in case you were like, but I wanted a pandemic cruise ship that couldn't stop anywhere. No one died book. People do die. Not, I don't think it's a lot, but um, there were, uh, most of the passengers were over the age of 65. So um, I feel like that especially makes sense with uh, what we knew about the first strain of COVID. Uh-huh. But anyway, so that book is Cabin Fever, The Harrowing Journey of a Cruise Ship at the Dawn of a Pandemic by Michael Smith and Jonathan Franklin. I want to say that sounds good, and I think it does sound good, but also, like, boy, what a, like, weird time, too, because, like, that title and subtitle, like, you could plop that into, like, 
almost any year in the last 100 years. And it would be like, oh my gosh, people stuck on a cruise ship. And it would like, it feels like a historical thing, but it's not. It's from like two years ago. (laughs) Two years ago. Oh my gosh. Just like. That's weird. (laughs) I know. What kind of time do we live in? A really weird one. Yeah. 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 Good pick. I that that I imagine that is going to be interesting, and I would love to hear someone who reads it to to tell us about how interesting it is. <laughs> I was going to say, do you think it's a good pick? <laughs> I do, I do. It's <laughs> I don't know. I guess I like you. You kind of alluded to this. Like, like, is there enough distance from pandemic things to like be reflective enough about it? But I think this is so contained, right? It's like this one group in this one place and this one experience. Like, there is enough distance from that to have written about it in a way that, like, kind of big picture we don't have yet, you know? Yeah, that was my thought, is that because it's such a specific thing and it was all very, like, here is what happened with this one boat, Mm -hmm. um, you can do it. People who are already writing, like, histories of the pandemic overall, it's just like, no. Yeah, (laughs) that that doesn't feel like it's possible yet, but this, this feels possible and interesting. So, good pick. My next pick is uh, called We Refuse to Forget, A True Story of Black Creek's American Identity and Power by Caleb Gale, uh, which came out uh, in early June, June 7th from Riverhead Books. Uh, This is a story of the Creek Nation, which is a native tribe in the uh, southwestern United States that, like 200 years ago, both owned slaves and accepted black people as full citizens as part of the Creek Nation. And so that sort of happened because people from the Creek Nation and also slaves like went on the Trail of Tears and ended up in the southwestern United States. And there were individuals, people, um, a a guy named uh, Cow Tom, who was a Black Creek citizen, who eventually rose to power to become chief of the nation. They that's how part of how this this nation became integrated with both Native people and Black citizens. And so in uh, 1866, the U.S. government recognized Creek citizenship for Black members. And so those black people were citizens of the Greek nation well before like they were able to be citizens many other places. And so like that um, community continued on for many years. And then in the 1970s, tribal leaders revoked citizenship of the black Greek members of the community, even the people who could trace their um, ancestry and the connection to the tribe all the way back to like the original founding members. And so uh, this book tries to explain like or explore like why that all has happened um and so he looks at how the u.s government was involved in many of these decisions how like what the role black creek citizens have played in the tribe and like the ongoing role that they have despite like being removed by tribal leadership and this one is just so interesting because there are so many different threads and stories that are all coming together in this one experience and in this one community. And so there's also like, it's a really interesting look at like how different marginalized communities bump into each other and then how white supremacy kind of also pushes into that and like the complications of all of those relationships coming together. And it's just, it's really... It's really fascinating, and it is something I know absolutely nothing about. I've never heard of this story. I've never heard of, like, the history of this community. And so I just think it's really fascinating and just a lot of different 
threads to kind of tie together and think about. And uh, Gail does a really nice job of kind of pulling all of this together and sort of giving context and also like kind of connecting the dots about some of the larger historical things we want to like connect to this story. So uh, I've said this like a million times, but it's super interesting. So that is We Refuse to Forget, A True Story of Black Creek's American Identity and Power by Caleb Gale. I've seen that at the library, like in the ebook section. I keep almost getting it, but it's a good pitch. So I'm going to add that. Yeah. And like, it's a like a big, complicated story, but the book is not super long either, like less than 300 pages. So he's really like... Love it. Yeah. Like gotten a big, complicated story, but like distilled it down to kind of the essence, which I think is really, really good. And I appreciate that. Everyone chop down the length of your book. <laughs> right. They're too long. Right. Yeah. Uh, My last pick is just a really quick mention of another title. Uh, It's called uh, City of Refugees, the story of three newcomers who breathed life into a dying American town by Susan Hartman. Uh, And this is a book about uh, Utica, New York, where like refugees have come to that community and have helped rejuvenate it after it was basically like an old manufacturing industrial town. They have helped really like rebuild the city. And so in this book, uh, Susan Hartman's a journalist. So for eight years, she spends time there and follows three uh, refugee citizens and how they are making a difference in the community. And so like, I don't know, this one just has like so many things that I love all together in one book. And so I'm excited to to dig into it. So that's City of Refugees, the story of three newcomers who breathed life into a dying American town by Susan Hartman. Oh, did you see the movie to Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar? No. Okay, first of all, you should see that movie. Uh, secondly, it is, the, when you first said the title, I was like, that movie? Is that what it's about? Because it is uh, the story of three drag queens played by John Leguizamo, Patrick Swayze, and Denzel Washington, who go on a road trip from New York to California and end up, their car breaks down in like a small Midwestern town, huh. and they just sort of breathe new life into the town. <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. I love that movie. I was rewatching it literally last week. That does sound delightful. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest-paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. This episode is sponsored by The One That Got Away with Murder by Trish Lundy. Robbie and Trevor Cressmont have enough wealth to ensure they'll never be found guilty of any wrongdoing, even if everyone believes they're behind the deaths of their ex-girlfriends. Let us all take a collective angry sigh at that. Lauren O'Brien, the new girl at school, has a dark past of her own, and she's desperate for a fresh start. 
except when she starts a relationship with Robbie, her chance is put in jeopardy. During what's meant to be their last weekend together, Lauren stumbles across evidence that might just implicate Robbie. And after a third death rocks the town, she must decide whether to end things with Robbie or risk becoming another cautionary tale. This is an edge-of-your-seat YA thriller that's perfect for fans of Karen McManus and Holly Jackson. Make sure you pick that up now wherever books are sold. And thank you once again to The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy for sponsoring today's show. Uh, all right. So uh, this week's theme, our uh, topic we're going to explore in depth uh, is disability activism. And we picked this topic because uh, the Americans with the Disabilities Act was signed into law in July of 1990 by President George H.W. Bush. And so uh, in July, it'll be 32 years since the ADA uh, was signed into law. And so we wanted to highlight some books that are connected to that uh, milestone in some way. So anything else to add? No, I'm excited that we're doing this topic. Yes, me too. Uh, all right, so the first book we're going to talk about is Disability Visibility, First-Person Stories from the 21st Century by Alice Wong. Uh, and so this is a collection of essays by people with disabilities, and it is about – it is super wide-ranging. And so it came out uh, two years ago at the 30th anniversary of the ADA being passed, uh, and so I, I like that it was connected to that 30-year milestone. And so – this is just a really fascinating collection because it's not just essays. Like she also brings in a lot of other types of writing and communication. So there's there's a beautiful eulogy for a disability activist. Um, there are some examples of testimony that was given to Congress. Um, there are like blog posts and some of these other pieces. And so there's really a lot of. In, in addition to having a lot of different voices, it also has a lot of different formats, which I liked. It is really intersectional, like many of the writers are also writers of color. And so there's a lot of um, intersectionality in the different experiences that people have that are explored through the different essays. Um, but my favorite essay, I think, in the whole collection is the one by um, is a woman named Harriet McBride Johnson. And she um, writes about getting in debates with a, a guy named Peter Singer over like personhood uh, and whether whether disabled people with disabilities should even be allowed to exist. Uh, and it's just deeply fascinating as like her personal experience and also this like her having like a deeply personal experience and debate with a person who's basically just doing it as an intellectual exercise and like what that feels like. Just a lot of really interesting stories and experiences and, and perspective on disability in a collection. So it's it's really remarkable and very well put together. So that is Disability Visibility, First Person Stories from the 21st Century by Alice Wong. Oh, that's, you know, I know we've talked about that briefly before. Mm -hmm. uh, I think when it first came out, because it was an early catapult release, I think, I from think, that press. I think so. It's, I just, it's such a cool collection. Mm -hmm. I'm just really glad it exists. Um, my first pick for this week is Hobbin, the Deafblind Woman Who Conquered Harvard Law by Hobbin Gurma. This we've also, I think, touched on before, maybe also when it came out, don't remember. But basically, Hobbin Gurma is the first deafblind graduate of Harvard Law School. And this is her memoir talking about her life growing up in Oakland. Uh, her parents are from Eritrea. And she was born with very poor vision. And then as she got older, her hearing sort of kept deteriorating. So she ended up going to a um, school for a center for the blind in Louisiana. She just like traveled a lot and did all this work. But in college, 
she uh, – the, they had these printed cafeteria menus that she couldn't read, right? So she fought for the right to basically have them emailed to her computer and then have them translated into digital Braille, which is so cool. And I did not know it was a thing. Um, so after she got her law degree, she became part of this legal team that helped expand coverage – that was provided by the Americans with Disabilities Ooh. Act that we are celebrating. But to not only – so that one fo- – the Americans with Disabilities Act focused on things like making the physical world more accessible, right? So like adding ramps and just making things, uh, well, accessible. But this was also to have this apply to the digital space. Mm. Which and like I, I feel like more and more we're having this conversation uh, about digital accessibility. But yeah. – um, it wasn't really on the radar for most people until I would say the last few years. So, and this mm-hmm. is partially because of work done by people like Haben Gurma. So, um, this is all just the many, many things that she's accomplished and just like her awesome life. So, again, that is Haben, the deafblind woman who conquered Harvard Law by Haben Gurma. Yeah, that one has sounded really great when I've heard you talk about it before. And I agree with you, like digital accessibility feels like it's really gotten a boost in the last few years, but definitely something that like is important to consider given like how much of the world is online and that it should still be available to to everybody. Yep. Yeah. All right. So uh, my next pick is a young adult nonfiction book called The Disability Experience, Working Towards Belonging by Hannah-Laura Levitt and Belle Woolrich. And so this book came out in 2021 from uh, Orca Book Publishers, and it's part of a series called Orca Issues, which is a series of nonfiction books for teens. So the Orca Issues series has books about climate change, mental health, the right to die, abortion rights, feminism, and then this book about disability. And so it's a young adult nonfiction book, so it is very like it, it's very well organized, and I really like the arc that it takes, where it starts with defining disability and exploring different kinds of disabilities that people might have. Uh, it gives a history of disability. It explores the culture around disability. Uh, and then it explores the culture of independence and what that means for people, which I thought was a really fascinating kind of move through like this overview, I guess. And then in the end, it talks a lot about technology, politics, pop culture, and different areas uh, related to disability in those um, arenas. And so um, it's got a lot of like pictures. It's very clearly written. Um, one of the coolest things about it is that it has these breakout boxes that are called In Real Life, where it just shares stories from everyday people who are living with a disability. And it is often connected to kind of the topic that the rest of those couple of pages are talking about. But it it just makes it feel very real and very diverse and very thoughtful about like these are not just intellectual discussions. Like these are not just things to think about. Like these are things that affect real people. Uh, and that kind of reemphasizes that over and over again. And so the book is really focused on how to increase access or make equal access to education, employment, housing, all of these different things for people with disabilities so that they can achieve their goals and live, you know, full and fulfilling lives. So I just really, um, I really like this one. I really like that it is, you know, like both honest and like very um, straightforward about like history and challenges, but also like has kind of these upbeat and real kind of concrete stories that are part of the, the whole package of the book. So that is The Disability Experience, Working Toward Belonging by Hannah-Laura Levitt and Belle Woolrich. Nice. <laughs> That's my <laughs> comment. <laughs> um, okay. Let's, I'm just, I'm sorry, I'm just excited about all these books. 
My next pick is Being Human, an unrepentant memoir of a disability rights activist by Judith Human and Kristen Joyner. It came out February 2020. So uh, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this is not only because of Judy Human's huge contribution to disability rights advocacy, but also because this came out right before the pandemic. And I think it was one of those books that maybe got a little lost in the shuffle Mm -hmm. uh, around that time. A lot of book tours were canceled, obviously, and are only just starting to come back. So Mm -hmm. uh, so let's talk about it. So Judy Human was born... I don't know when, but um, she was paralyzed from polio when she was 18 months old, uh, meaning she could not walk. And when she wanted to go to school, uh, like first grade, the teachers said or the school said she could not go because since she couldn't walk, she was a fire hazard, which is horrifying. Um, So she fought against that and ended up being able to go to school. And then later she studied speech therapy in school. And uh, wanted to become a teacher. And again, so in 1970, right, so it's like 50 years ago, was denied her New York teaching license because the board did not think she could get herself or her students out of the building in case of a fire. So they were like, you cannot be a teacher. That is so bizarre. Right. So she sued the Board of Education. <laughs> which is amazing, and ended up, they settled, and she became the first wheelchair user to teach in New York City. So cool. But she wasn't done there. So then she um, continued her advocacy work. She uh, went to the U.S. Department of Health, Education, and Welfare in San Francisco and led a takeover of that building uh, with over 150 disabled activists and allies in order to get more protections for disabled people's rights, which eventually led to the creation of the Americans with Disabilities Act uh, 20, 15 years later. And, oh, also, <laughs> still like add more stuff. Um, she, uh, part of the work that she did was um, there was a bill called the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 that Nixon vetoed. And after... Um, she led a uh, sit-in on Madison Avenue in New York. And that, like, completely stopped traffic. It was, like, in the street. And they uh, ended up getting this bill passed by Nixon. And it's just... And then he, like, he didn't provide... Part of the the sit-in in the government building was that he didn't provide... uh, You know, you can, like, pass a law, but then not have any kind of incentive to, like, make states enforce it. Mm -hmm. And so after they did that sit-in... People from his, uh, it's not group, what do you call it? Like, cabinet? Yeah. <laughs> his administration. Uh, they uh, met with her, and there's, like, really amazing footage of her talking with them. Like, she's talking to this man, and he's nodding along, and she's like, don't not, you don't know what I'm talking about. You know what I mean? She was like, don't <laughs> nod along with what I'm saying. Oh, it's so good. Anyway, okay, so this is her book, Being Human, H-E-U-M-A-N-N, An Unrepentant Memoir of a Disability Rights Activist by Judith Human and Kristen Joyner. That is a really great pick. And yeah, it made me think like about like the ADA was only signed in 1990. And so like in the 1970s, like it could have been really hard for her to get out of a building, which doesn't mean that she shouldn't be a teacher, but also that like, what the heck? That's terrible, you know? And so... Yeah, I don't know why, like, that is the thing that sort of, like, 
struck me about everything you were talking about. But yeah, that sounds really good. And I think you're right. Like probably a February 2020 memoir, it did not get the attention that it deserved. So I'm glad that you were able to bring it back now. Well, and she like, she does a really good interview with Trevor Noah when she's, when the book was out and he was talking about how like these things that we take for granted now, like ramps at buildings, just mm-hmm. were not there. And yeah. that she is like a huge reason that they are now there. And so it's just, oh, it's so, it's just so impressive. That's amazing. Uh, I have one more real quick pick that I wanted to mention. That was also another book that I found at the library when I was uh, like looking around for what I wanted to feature. And I just wanted to highlight it because I think it is really cool. Uh, and that is called Demystifying Disability, What to Know, What to Say, and How to Be an Ally by Emily, Emily Landau. Uh, and so this is just a book basically about how to be an ally around disability. And so it is kind of covering like the things that you as a person who's not familiar would need to know about. So how to talk and think and ask about disability, how to avoid ableism or discrimination towards disabled people, how to have good disability etiquette, making sure that accessibility is a practice that you evoke uh, and use in your everyday life. So just lots of different stuff like that. And so um, Emily Landau is a disability rights activist activist and advocate and speaker. And so um, I think this is just a good guide for people who want to learn more and how to be kind of a more sensitive and helpful person. So I just wanted to bring that one up because I found it at the library and I thought this is really cool and I'm excited about it. So Demystifying Disability, What to Know, What to Say, and How to Be an Ally by Emily Landau. Oh, well, I also had one left. (laughs) One last one to mention real quick, which is A Disability History of the United States by Kim E. Nielsen. This is part of Beacon's Revisioning History series that we have talked about. So um, this is the first book to cover the entirety of disability history from before 1492, so I guess we would say pre-Columbian, to the present. And it's just, if you like that series or have been interested in other entries to it, um, it's such a cool idea. I'm just, you know, hats off to whoever came up with it at Beacon. Again, that is uh, A Disability History of the United States by Kim E. Nielsen. I'm glad you mentioned that one. Yeah, that was a, not to like pat ourselves on the back, but that was a really good range of of picks. Yeah, let's pat ourselves on the back. (laughs) (laughs) That's exciting. So obviously there are many more books, but those are just a few that we uh, are excited about and wanted to tell you about. Uh, We will wrap up this week's episode as we normally do by talking about the books that we are reading uh, right now at this very moment. I am in a little bit of a reading slump, so I'm not in the middle of anything right now, but the book I am hoping to pick up is Flying Solo by Linda Holmes, which is fiction. Um, She wrote, Linda Holmes is one of the co-hosts of um, NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour uh, podcast, which is how I first got to know her. She's a culture critic who I think is very astute and funny. Her first book is called Evie Drake Starts Over. It's a romance novel about a widow who falls in love with a struggling baseball player. Uh, Flying Solo is set in the same town as that book, but a totally different set of characters. And I don't really know much about it beyond that, Um, but I loved her first book and I think she's a really great writer. So I'm excited for something nice and (laughs) soothing and charming, hopefully. Flying Solo by Linda Holmes. Oh, that's really nice. Um, I'm in the opposite of a reading slump and am just like obsessed with reading right now. That's all I want to do. I love that it. or or watch television. Love it's it. those two. Just give me content in like some kind of narrative form. But uh, one of the nonfiction books I'm doing is the audiobook of uh, Looking for the Good War, American Amnesia and the Violent Pursuit of Happiness by Elizabeth D. Samet, which is basically about 
I don't know if this is totally accurate as a representation of it, but <laughs> it's the, that inspires confidence. But it is basically how Americans misremember World War II in, mm. and have this like weird patina of nostalgia over it and how it was in, with the title looking for the good war right it's like people think like oh yeah world war ii was like a good war like you know we were fighting for all and she doesn't approach it with like we should not have participated in world war ii um she is very like i think that we needed to uh because of what the threat was but also that war is never good mm. and that it's not like there are all these things like everyone at home was, you know, all like united and all this stuff. And she's like, no, there's like, you know, like, here's what history actually tells us about it. She does a lot of work of talking about various, uh, what are the different media, uh, books, movies, and something else. Uh, basically looking at things from that period and how they represented war and what the like uh, specific quotes from it, but also themes throughout them tell us about that. She also talks about the Korean War, how it was related to World War II, and then goes up to I'm near the end, and it's she's talking about Vietnam and just how that was so differently remembered and is still from World War II, uh, and sort of like dismantling the the myth of the Greatest Generation, which is also fascinating because that was happening in the 1990s when. I was in grade school, and I definitely remember Tom Brokaw talking about the greatest uh-huh. generation. Uh, near the end, she has a section about specifically about um, the black soldier experience in World War II that is very challenging, and she gets into some details that I just had no idea about. And I'm, I was talking to a friend who also read the book, and she was like, "I had to skim that part; it was so hard." And I was like, "I, I agree. Like, it is extremely hard, and I, I'm glad that she decided to." highlight these things but it's just like one it's just horrifying just like what things that happen and then we think back on like oh yeah good old gis and big band Uh, music and stuff uh so anyway um i'm loving it she teaches at west point which i think is an extra layer of interesting yeah to um because she a lot you know her students are uh end up being soldiers so okay it is again looking for the good war american amnesia and the violent pursuit of happiness by elizabeth d Salmon. And with that, you can find us on social media. I am at It's Alice Time, and Kim is at Kim the Dork. Our amazing audio editing for this episode was done by Jen Zink. If you have a few minutes, we would love it if you took the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify so people can find us more easily. And while you're there, you can follow us so you get new episodes the very minute that they come out. With that, I am Kim Ukra. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the For Real Podcast. Podcast.